This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. After years of practice, I'm much more likely to say, wow, this is a really hard moment. I'm having a hard time. Parenting is hard. It's hard for all of us. What do I need? What does my child need? And so instead of feeling stuck in the awfulness of the moment, unsure of where to go, I feel better. Things feel a little lighter, a little more manageable. And when I ask myself questions like, what do I need or what does my child need? I can figure out what to do next. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is how to stop losing it with your kids. And I am excited to welcome our guest, Carla Nomberg, who is a Dr. Carla Nomberg, I should say, who is a writer, mother, and clinical social worker. She's the author of three parenting books, the best-selling How to Stop Losing Your Shit with Your Kids, A Practical Guide to Becoming a Calmer, Happier Parent. Who doesn't want that? Ready, Set, Breathe, Practicing Mindfulness with Your Children for Fewer Meltdowns and a More Peaceful Family. And finally, Parenting in the Present Moment, How to Stay Focused on What Really Matters. Carla's writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, CNN, and Mindful Magazine, and many, many other places. She lives outside of Boston with her husband, daughters, and two totally insane cats. Carla, welcome to the show. I am so glad to be here. So, okay, let's start with your journey. I always like to start with the journey. And what led you to becoming a clinical social worker? Oh, that's a great question. It was the only thing I ever could imagine doing. And I, I took a psychology class my senior year in high school, and I was like this is done. I'm hooked. I find human behavior and families and systems and relationships and emotions, um, all of it endlessly fascinating. In fact, it's one of the only things I'm curious about in this world. We joke in my family that like, I'm the one who really finds most of the world not that interesting, except people and their relationships and their behaviors and all the things. So yeah, so they just seem like a natural fit. Mm -hmm. And the social work degree, you know, people always often come to me when they're, you know, for, you know, what, what should I go to graduate school? Should I, what degree should I pursue? And, you know, a place that I always, as a psychologist, even a place that I always lead people to is, you know what, the, a social work degree is to me the most 
um, diverse, vast. Uh, you can go in so many different directions into the clinical work, into systems, into policy. You know, it just seems like there's so much there. Absolutely. But I, I would love to be able to tell you that I had this super thoughtful approach to picking social work. But really what happened was immediately after college, I had an undergraduate degree in psychology. I worked at a school for children who were in the foster system. Mm-hmm. And they, they were having a hard time functioning in the general school system. So this was a therapeutic day school. And I was teaching. But I started to see what the counselors, the clinicians were doing. They were doing the therapy. And I said, I want to do that. Like, that's the job I want. And so I went to my boss and I said, how do I get that job? And she said, you need to go to school. And I said, okay, what kind of job? What kind of school? And she said, well, you could do a degree in psychology or in social work, but social work will only take you two years and it's cheaper and it's easier to get hired. And I was like, oh, shorter, cheaper, easier to get hired. I'm in. So it, I, it wasn't, it wasn't a particularly thoughtful process in terms of social work versus psychology, but it actually turned out to be a really good match for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I actually had a somewhat similar experience uh, prior to graduate school where uh, in college I was working at a group home um, for kids, a therapeutic placement for boys. And, you know, I was the child care worker uh, and there was group therapy every day with this social worker. Uh, he was actually a social worker in training and I wanted to be in that room. And I was like never allowed in that room because they're like, you need to be, have clinical training. You have to, you know, have these expertise. And I'm like, I want to get in that room. And so, uh, I found a way to get in that room. That's Okay. So, um, did you ever think you would be writing parenting books and being a parenting expert when you uh, got into the field? Uh, no. So when I, but I, I always thought I would be writing books. Well, apparently, I don't remember this, but my grandfather told me that when I was about seven years old, I told him that all I wanted to do in life was write a book because everybody knows that if you write a book, it means you're smart. And he was like, <laughs> you should totally write a book. Yeah. Um, I think he was probably thinking of all the not very smart people who have managed to get books published, but he, he was very supportive. And so um, I picked my major in undergraduate, partially because it was what I was interested in, but partially because I knew it required a dissertation and I actually really like writing. And I picked my, one of the reasons I picked the social work program I went to was because it was one of the few master's programs in social work that required a dissertation. So I wrote that. And my favorite part of my doc- doctoral degree was writing my dissertation. So I I love writing. I love writing long things. And so I always knew I wanted to write books. And when be, I became a parent, um, my world was flipped upside down so dramatically that, you know, writing is a way I solve problems. It's a Mm -hmm. way I explore myself. It's a way I figure out what's going on and how to function and what to do next. And so it sort of became natural that I started writing about parenting. Mm -hmm. Um, I still struggle with the term parenting expert, and we can talk about that, but I do love working through and solving problems and exploring my -hmm. life and parenting through writing. Let's first just address that the best part of graduate school was writing your dissertation. So for everyone listening, for those of you who have written a dissertation, I'm interested in how many of you also found that to be the best part. And for those of you who haven't gone through the process, this is something that I think uh, distinguishes you, Carla, because a lot of people do not love that process. So... I loved it because I got to pick my topic, which actually had nothing to do with parenting. It was about email communication between clients and therapists back before that was a thing that really happened all the time. Um, And it was a good time. So I had two kids under the age of two when I was working on my dissertation. Perfect. And I... Yeah, that was a nightmare. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. working, but I was working on my dissertation. Yeah. And 
um, I felt, and this is an interesting topic that's a little off topic, but I felt guilty mm-hmm. for the fact that we were paying for part-time daycare and I wasn't working. I was working on my dissertation. And so I set this goal that I needed to finish it from start to end in one year, um, all of it. from the and, and I got it done. And I was really motivated by the fact that like we're paying for this expensive daycare and it's a financial stressor and I need to get back into the workforce. And I think that says a lot about, you know, working and what we value and what we don't and all the things that we could get into. But Mm -hmm. I loved it. And I actually worked my butt off because I really wanted to get it done. Yeah, that is uh, impressive. And uh, obviously a uh, supportive um, academic environment, which helped you achieve that goal. It was very, I had a supportive spouse, which was a Mm -hmm. big, big deal um, to all the single parents out there. I, it's mm-hmm. brutal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was interesting though, because I was talking to my uh, advisor who was a lovely, lovely man. And he really encouraged me to apply for full-time academic jobs. And I said, I don't think I can do it when I have two little kids. I just don't see how that's possible. And he said, no, no, academia is the best profession when you have two little kids. And I said, I knew he was straight heterosexual. So I said, you have your wife at home. Was she working? And he said, no. And I said, right. So I'm that wife, except I will be working. Yeah. He yeah. just, he was a very sweet man, but he didn't see. Yeah. Um, so I didn't end up going into academia full time, which was the right call for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when did mindfulness come into your life in a real way and why and how? Yeah. Yeah. So The first time I learned about mindfulness was in college when I signed up for a meditation course because I needed an easy PE credit to graduate. (laughs) And somehow that counted as PE. And I was like, this is total BS. I can't even stand this. I'm out. So I did not take it seriously. I thought it was ridiculous. And then um, it came back into my life when my daughters were young and I was yelling at them all the time. And I was never really a yeller before that, except maybe with my sister in high school, but I don't feel like anybody should be held responsible for what they do in high school. So um, I was very surprised to realize how often I was losing my temper with the girls when they were really little. And I had a huge amount of guilt and shame about it. And uh, as I said in the book, I, you know, I, I couldn't figure it out. I would like resolve. I'm not going to scream at them. I'm not. And of course the next day I totally would. It was like breaking a diet over and over again. It was mm-hmm, horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, until one night I actually sat down at my computer. I put them in front of the TV and then felt guilty for putting them in front of the TV, which by the way, parents, you don't need to feel guilty about that. Do not. Um, no. And I think I had just finished my PhD. So I literally had a doctorate in like family dynamics, complex feelings and difficult emotions I could not figure this out. I sat down, I pulled up Google and I think I literally typed in, how do I stop yelling at my kids? I just, I didn't know what else to do. And so eventually I sort of begrudgingly signed up for a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. Cause I was like, I don't know what else to do. I was like a hostile witness in that class. I was so pissy about it. Um, well, and, and you're, the, and you're in Massachusetts where John Kabat-Zinn kind of founded this, you know, a huge part of the Western movement of mindfulness-based stress reduction. I actually took the class out at UMass Worcester at his clinic that he founded. Awesome. Right? Awesome. And I was like a petulant child, Dr. Dan. I have to be really honest. (laughs) I was like, there is no way I'm putting my hand on my heart. That is baloney. (laughs) But I, I was really at the end of my rope. I didn't know what else to do. And so eventually I started trying some of the things they were suggesting and it changed everything for me. And I you know, I became like this 
crazy mindfulness person. Um, and I think I've found sort of a happy balance now, <laughs> yeah. you know, like yeah. when you, when yeah. you discover something new and you just want to put like the pin and the bumper sticker and all the things. Yeah. And I think I've sort of settled into it in my life a little bit more, but mindfulness and self-compassion, they're like my, my go-to. I don't, I don't know how I ever thought I could do therapy or parent or do anything without these skills. And it's not to say, I'm a perfect parent. I mean, just last night at dinner, my daughter, my 12 year old daughter and I got into a huge thing and it was annoying. And then we had to do all this repair and I felt bad, but at least like that stuff still happens. And I Mm -hmm. want your listeners to know, of course it still happens. I'm not sitting here saying that I am now a perfect parent. The joke (laughs) is that, you know, you become the Dolly mama, (laughs) right? right. I'm not the Dolly mama, but, um, I now have skills and strategies so that it happens less often. And, when I do behave in ways that are not congruent with the kind of parent I want to be, AKA I lose my shit. Um, I can sort of get back on track more quickly and easily than I could have before. Mm-hmm. And I heard you recently uh, speak with Zibby Owens on uh, yeah. Marisha and live. And you did talk about compassion and your movement towards, you know, your next uh, thinking about that with your next piece of work. But I can see how, you know, let's talk a little bit more about compassion as it relates to mindfulness and as just as it relates to being human. Yeah. So, um, there is this thing and it seems to be more of a Western thing, although I I haven't done the research, I don't know where we think it's like a good thing to beat ourselves up or we, or at least we don't think it's a bad thing or it's just a thing we don't think about. Like, you know, I did an undergraduate degree in psychology and like many years of advanced study in the field. And we never once talked about self-compassion. Like literally, I never heard those two words together. Right. right? right. And it's been a big part of Buddhist practice. And I think many actually religious practices for a very long time. Um, but for some reason in the West, it's like this culturally sanctioned thing to beat ourselves up for any flaw or error or mistake or difficult moment, real or perceived. Um, I think part of it is it's it's a very humane thing. And there's some things around like um, evolution and how our brains evolved and social structures and stuff that actually make it useful. You know, if I put myself down before you can, then maybe you'll be more likely to tell me I don't actually suck as much as I think I do. And you'll make me feel better. And that will like strengthen our bond. Yeah. But the truth is that, you know, self-criticism which comes so naturally to so many of us, especially parents. And tell me if you disagree with this. I think Mm. there's a gender piece here. I think women tend to do it more than men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And we especially do it around parenting. And how could we not when, you know, there are all these parenting experts, air quotes, experts, telling us all the ways we should be doing it better. So the implicit suggestion being that you're doing it wrong. And like all these social media parents, influencers, people who make it seem like, their kids automatically put on their shoes the first time they ask in their perfectly spotless mudroom, right? And so it's like, oh gosh, somebody out there has figured out this parenting thing, right? right the underlying right. message be that it is possible to figure it out. I call BS on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we end up in this place of really criticizing ourselves and it leads to higher anxiety. It makes us feel depressed. It makes us feel disempowered, confused, Um not confident about our skills, about our abilities. And it's just like this really negative spiral. The end result being that we make decisions from a place of anxiety and confusion. We get very reactive. We lose our temper with our kids, all the things. And when I learned 
to respond to myself with self-compassion, which was a difficult journey for me. I really felt like, um, remember the Saturday Night Live skit with Stuart Smalley, where he sits down in front of the mirror and says, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. I was like, oh, that's what they want me to do, and it's gross, and I don't want to do it. Um, But I started to practice in a way that felt more authentic to me. And now when I lose it with my kids, instead of saying to myself, I'm a terrible mom and I'm screwing these kids up, which is what I used to say to myself. Mm-hmm. Who says that to themselves? That's horrible. We all do. Right, right. Now I say, and it really comes very naturally after years of practice, I'm much more likely to say, wow, this is a really hard moment. I'm having a hard time. Parenting is hard. It's hard for all of us. What do I need? What mm-hmm. does my child need? And mm-hmm. so instead of feeling stuck in the awfulness of the moment, unsure of where to go, I feel better. Things feel a little lighter, a little more manageable. And when I ask myself questions like, what do I need? Or what does my child need? I can figure out what to do next. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's like, I need some space. I need to get away from these kids. Sometimes it's, I need to put them in front of their Nintendo switch. So they leave me alone. And sometimes it's like, Oh, I actually really need to connect with this child and we need to find some time to be together Sometimes it's just like, oh my gosh, I need to pee. And I've had to pee for like an hour and I keep forgetting to pee. And it's really hard to be calm when you haven't gone to the bathroom. Right. So that's, yeah. that's my yeah. little spiel on c- compassion. Well, and, and I like the, dis- the, the way you lay out the different choices um, because, you know, something that's very aligned with your work and um, my work in the show is this uh, awareness, right? This awareness yeah. of how we're feeling, uh, what just happened, um, what do I need to do now? This purposeful, intentional. And, yes. and one of the scenarios, one of your choices was I need to connect with my child, which you talked about with your daughter, like the event last night, there needed to be some repair. How do you, yes. how do you recommend people think about, you know, once you've checked in with yourself and you're kind to yourself, you're not beating yourself up. You're not, you're not treating yourself like, like the way you would never treat a friend or someone you love, once you establish that, how do you determine whether repair is needed or we just need to let this thing go? So that is a fantastic question uh, that very few people have asked me and it's such a good one. So hopefully, perhaps you've mentioned on your show that there's a phrase we people in this you know, parenting world use called rupture, repair, repeat. Mm -hmm. And this is like the parent child cycle, right? There's a rupture between us, there's some kind of repair, and then it happens all over again. And I hope when listeners hear that, they won't feel disheartened, like, oh, dear God, is this the next however many years of my life, but they'll actually feel like, oh, this is normal. It's what happens. It's okay. So the question, is there repair that's needed or not? I, I would recommend to parents that you take a moment to notice, how are you feeling? What does your gut tell you? And can you notice that from a place of kind of calm and clarity, right? If you're still really triggered and worked up about whatever happened, then try to go back and give yourself a little time um, and, and see what you can do about calming yourself down so you can see things a little more clearly. And then try to notice what's going on with your kid. So I'll just use the example from last night. My, my daughter and I got into it at the dinner table My husband went up to talk to her. He's often better at calming her down than I am. And afterwards I checked in with him and he was like, well, you know, maybe you should talk to her. And so she came down, we watched a TV show. She didn't talk to me. She was very pleasant to me. Hi mommy. What's the show? Blah, blah, blah. And I think she would have been happy to brush it under the rug. Mm -hmm. Honestly. Yeah. Um, 
But I decided that I had the emotional reserves and the desire to talk to her about it. And so if I had been completely drained, honestly, I probably would have let it go. Because if I went up there and tried to talk to her when I had nothing left to give, we probably would have ended up snapping at each other again, which mm-hmm. would have been the opposite of what we were trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. But I I had sort of enough gas left in the tank at the end of the day. And I said to her, would you like to talk about what happened? And mm. she said, yes. Nice. If she had said no, I would have followed her lead and said, okay, I just want you to know I love you. We can always talk about it tomorrow or whenever, or we don't have to. Because I don't think every single moment has to be like dissected and addressed and whatever. But she said she wanted to talk about it. And so we did. And that went well. Doesn't always, but it did. So I, I would encourage parents to sort of check in with themselves when they're in a calm place, follow their gut. And then check in with the kid, both by just sort of observing them, not in a creepy way, don't stare at your child, but like notice how do they seem to be doing. And um, if you feel like you have the energy within you to ask them, would you like to talk about this? Now, if it if it feels not optional to you as a parent to talk about it, if something has gone down that absolutely needs to be addressed, then you can say to them, we need to talk about it. And if your kid is older, I mean, obviously this is older kids, right? Yeah. With younger kids, it's really about going and being near them and attuning to how they're doing. And is this a child who does well with snuggles? Is this a child who will reconnect through play or through reading a book? You know, just sit and be present with the kid and they will let you know what they need. I love right? the question. Well, I lo- and I love the question. Yeah. So it's so respectful. And I agree with you. There are some things we like have to talk about. Right. And I think as I've gotten older as a parent, it's it's how can we keep the mandatory things, the 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 ma- the rules, like all the the rigid stuff, how do we keep it to a minimum? Like we only use it in case like we absolutely have yeah. to do this. And the rest of the time give our kids choice and respect and um you know, treat them as equal human beings who have their own thoughts and feelings about what happened as well. And I think what we find is our kids respond more when we think about all of these things. Um, yeah. Yeah. And my 12 year old, my older daughter is especially in a place where um, she wants that. She wants that autonomy and she generally is responsible enough to have it. And so I know that she is very aware that she doesn't like it when we tell her what to do. Well, I don't like it either. I don't blame her. Mm-hmm. And there are obviously some situations where we still do, where it's not a choice. Like, no, you can't go to that play date or that party or whatever it is because it's for X, Y, and Z reasons. Like we still absolutely set limits with her, mm-hmm. but whenever possible, giving her the autonomy really, it makes a big difference for her and for our relationship. Okay, I have a few different directions I want to go here. I need to pick one. So um, let's just a little bit more about mindfulness before we move a little closer to pinning down why parents lose their shit. So um, you talked about the challenge of getting into mindfulness. I I share that. I have a regular practice now, but I think I put it off for 10 years because I, quote, didn't have enough time to do it right, being the recovering perfectionist that I am is so it was like, Oh no, I have to have an hour each day and I have to study this and I have to. And so mind, there's so many ways to do mindfulness. And this leads me to the question, like getting your kid, you know, you talk about practicing mindfulness with your kids. So it's like, Oh gosh, first I have to do it. And then I have to get my kid to do it and they don't want to do it and they don't have a long attention span. So, so what's the secret sauce? How do you, how do you recommend people approach this? Yeah. So look, for parents, first of all, I would like to say who are concerned about 
getting into it with their kids, like, don't worry about that. Just let it go. You know, you worry about yourself first. Um, that's a phrase in our family. You worry about yourself. Um, it's from like some little YouTube video. And uh, the kids will follow or they won't. But the best way to teach them is to model it. And there were actually, so when I was researching ready, set, breathe, practicing mindfulness with your kids, um, I reached out to a number of parents I know who practice mindfulness. And many of them said, yes, this is how I share it with my kids. But probably almost as many said, I don't explicitly share this with my children. That's not my mindfulness practice. I have found it's not successful. So I want to be really transparent with listeners. Start with yourself. Don't worry about the kids. That'll mm -hmm, come. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I will be really transparent that my meditation practice is inconsistent. I don't do it every day. I do it most days. It's usually about 15, 20 minutes. And often it's out when I'm walking. I try to go for walks. Even before we all got stuck in our houses during the pandemic, I would frequently go for walks. And for me, it looks a whole lot like counting my steps to eight. One through eight, count again. And, you know, sometimes I get to three or even just two before my mind wanders and then I have to come back to it. But I find that walking meditation for me, there's something about that body movement that really helps me get into it and stay focused. Um, it also happens in very small moments for me. And the times I really try to focus are transitions. And we always talk about transitions being hard for children. Well, guess what? They're hard for everyone, adults too. Yeah. And when we are getting into or out of the car, and we are fortunate enough that my daughters have actually been going to school for much of this pandemic year. Mm -hmm. So we do still have those transitions. Um, or even going from like the living room to the d dining room for dinner, like all of these transitions. And as my kids have had more screen time during the pandemic, getting them off the screen is also a transition. Yep. I find that those are moments where I tend to get anxious. And when I'm anxious, I tend to get snappy. Mm -hmm. And I tend to rush us even when we don't need to be rushed. And that's annoying. It feels bad for me. It irritates my kids. So those are the times when I really try to practice my mindfulness, which for me looks like taking a few deep breaths, which I think about it as like sending a text message to my nervous system. Hey, it's okay. You don't actually need to freak out. There is not a danger here. There is not a risk. Nobody's in danger of getting hurt calm it down. Because if there really was a risk, I wouldn't be able to take the time to take deep breaths, right? Mm -hmm. I'd be trying to fight or flee or whatever. So I take my deep breaths. And then I try to say to myself, okay, what actually needs to happen here? Like, how are we doing? Sometimes I will make a list. Um, I think going into fix it mode can sometimes be a little reactive and parents will do that as like, a, almost like fight, flight or fix it. Like, right, you gotta right, like right. jump in. But for me, making a list will help me get out of my anxious brain and, like, okay, now we just need to go through the list of what needs to get done. So I find that transitions are a big point where I try to come back to the present moment and really focus on what needs to happen. Um, and so for me, it's getting outdoors is a huge mindfulness practice for me. Walking meditation, which is not the super slow monk like walking that you sometimes do on retreat, I'm literally just counting my steps. Um, and then also in transitions, trying to like do one thing at a time and stay very focused on the moment. As you are describing for everyone, there are so many different ways of being mindful. Like we want to, we want to demystify this whole Buddhist monk idea of, yes. um, that to be enlightened is, 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 is how was my mindful. And it's, it's, it's in this every day. And I think, and I, I, I'm, 
I don't quite, you're going to know this better than I, because I don't quite remember John Kabat-Zinn's exact um, definition of mindfulness, but isn't, it's something like, um, it's basically like present moment awareness without judgment, or, you know, it's something very simple like that. How would you, how would you describe it? Yeah. So that's basically what it is. And I, I add a little tweak. So I talk about choosing to pay attention to the present moment with kindness and curiosity so we can choose our next steps. Cause for me, I'm a very pragmatic, concrete nice. person. Yeah. And I'm like, what is the point of showing up in the present moment? Especially when the present moment is freaking horrible. Why do I want right. to show up for it? Right. Um, and so I like starting out with choosing because it's, it's an intentional thing. Cause sometimes I happen to be in the present moment, but that's because some screen or child or somebody has kind of yanked my attention to it. Um, and it feels like sort of a reactive attention. And I think about choosing to pay attention to the present moment and the present moment I think of as really important because it's kind of like where the action is, right? It's the only place we can get accurate information about what's actually happening. And it's the only place we can affect change. Yeah. Yeah. The kindness and curiosity is just, it's crucial. It's central to mindfulness. It's not a mindfulness practice if you're showing up and then proceeding to like berate yourself. And if you notice yourself doing that, please don't beat yourself up for beating for not yourself practicing up. mindfulness. Yeah, like, yeah, just don't yeah, do yeah. that. Like, just right. show up and be like, oh, all right. So that yeah. happened. Did that again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then really the whole point of this for me is that we want to come into the present moment. We want to be kind to ourselves. We want to get curious about what's going on for ourselves, for our kids, for whatever's around us, so that we can then be intentional about what we do next. And sometimes what we do next is stay in the present moment, continue with our mindfulness practice. Sometimes we're not actually meditating in that moment. And what we need to do next is get our kids to put their damn shoes on. But maybe we can do it in a kinder, more effective way if we've taken that moment of mindfulness. Um, and my my best, well, one example of that is that, you know, we the place where the kids put their shoes on in the morning, and I'm really hung up on this shoe thing because it never seems to end, um, is out of eyesight from where their lunches are packed. And so I'll be packing the last bits of their lunches and I will yell at them, put your shoes on. And like 50% of the time I'm right. They're totally not putting their shoes on. But 50% of the time I'm wrong. And by some miracle of the universe, they actually are putting their shoes on. I've just yelled at them. So the message they get is, it doesn't matter if we do it or not. Mom's still going to yell. Why would we bother doing it? Yep. Right. Right. And when right. I can take like one moment, come back into the present moment, literally peek my head around the corner. It's not like we live in a mansion where I'm on the West wing and they're on the East wing. I just have to peek my damn head around the corner. Yeah. And then I can see, I can get that moment of clarity. I get curious. Are they doing it? I actually see it. And then I either proceed to yell at them or not. Right. And for <laughs> right? everyone listening that, so Carla just, that's the self, like that's the mindful awareness is being aware yes. of all of these <laughs> steps instead of just acting or reacting. And yeah. that reminds me, I had a very wise uh, guide in my life who taught me when I was being very self-critical to say, hmm, interesting, I'm thinking that right now and just move on. Like just notice it and move totally. on. And it was, oh, it was so powerful. Just that, 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 that change of thinking instead of beating myself up. Um, so continuing on the topic of awareness, you have a chapter that I love the title and the content called Know Thy Shit. <laughs> so, so right, this is about awareness. So tell us about, tell us about this. Yeah, I'm a little sweary in the book. People should know that. Um, so 
one of the things I talk about in the book is the idea that when we are losing it with our kids, it's because we've been triggered, right? Our nervous systems are on high alert. And I use the um, analogy of buttons for our nervous system, that it's like our body is covered in all these buttons. And when we're triggered, the buttons get really bright and big and red and sensitive. And as any kid who's, as any adult who's ever been in an elevator with a kid knows when a kid sees a button, they push it. It doesn't mean they're a psychopath. It doesn't mean they hate you. They push it because they're young and buttons are fun to push and because they're immature and because they don't know what else to do and because they're triggered and because they're, you know, genetically engineered to get our attention because we are the way they stay alive. Mm -hmm. Kids just push buttons, right? For all they do. Yep. And so part of reducing the likelihood that you will lose it with your kids means reducing the likelihood that you get triggered and big part of that is knowing what triggers you. And right now, as we are, God willing, coming out of this pandemic, most of us have been triggered even more than usual because there's literally a threat to all of us out there in the world and it's hard to know what's going on and blah, blah, blah. So we're extra triggered. And there are some universal triggers like exhaustion, grief, anxiety, physical pain, all of these things, stress, right? Mm-hmm. Make it more likely that we will be triggered. But the know thyself is also knowing about your individual triggers. And so for me, I am what some people might call a highly sensitive person. And partially mm-hmm. that means I'm really sensitive to other people's emotional states. Um, but partially what it means is that I, like if I was a kid right now, my parents would be out finding me the socks without the seams in it and the totally. clothes without the totally. tags in them. And, yep. you know, I wish I could just go around wearing noise canceling headphones all the time. Yep. And I don't like loud music and strong smells are really hard. I'm not really a big fan of flavor, which some yeah. people find really weird, but flavor, strong flavors overwhelm me. Physical touch, being touched a lot makes me cranky and irritable. Yeah, a lot of sensory and, sensitivities. Yes, big time. It, it, and it wasn't a thing anybody talked about when I was a kid. Now yeah. we know about it more. Right. And so um, I didn't really understand this about myself until I was a parent and kids were touching me all the time. And I was <laughs> like, dear yeah. God, I just don't want to be touched. Yeah. And my husband doesn't have this at all. It's not a thing for him. You know, I come home from a day in work clothes and all I want to do is put on sweatpants, which is one reason that, you know, being stuck in quarantine kind of worked for me in some ways. Um, And he'll come home in a suit and it doesn't even occur to him to take his suit off because it's not uncomfortable. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I am subject to a lot of sensory input, I become incredibly cranky. I am triggered. My buttons get very big and bright and pushable, and I'm much more likely to lose it with my kids. And so going for walks and spending time outdoors is one of the ways I counteract the like input of sensory stuff that triggers me. Getting a lot of sleep also really helps. Um, constantly asking my kids to turn down the music. That's a fun family dynamic we have. Mm-hmm, that, that's mm-hmm. enjoyable. Um, but it's just something I have to know about myself. I can't right. fix it, right? Right, right. And for other people, certain holidays are triggers, certain anniversaries are triggers. Um, you know, there's there's a whole range of stuff that, and we just need to know it about ourselves. And some of it yeah. we can fix. Like right. if you're in physical pain, can you take some medicine? And some of it we just can't fix. And we have to learn to live with it and learn right. how to sort of mitigate it. Right. Which, and then that brings us to, you talk about the difference between things you have to do and things you should do. And um, I just want to, something that um, I got to chuckle because knowing that um, your book has um, 
a lot of the word shit in it. Uh, it reminded me of early training um, where I learned about uh, rational emotive behavioral therapy, Albert Ellis, who was really, you know, founded like the precursor to cognitive behavioral therapy or the beginning. And right. he would talk about the shoulds and he would tell people not to use should because that means you're shooting all over yourself. So That's I still right. use that all the time and tell clients this idea of like, when we have these shoulds, we have to be careful that they're not... Um, negative, right? That make us feel guilty and such. But that's not what you're talking about when there's the things you have to do and the things that you should do to stay healthy, be mindful and reduce your triggers. Yeah. I mean, there are some things that somehow we parents think we can do essentially the equivalent of like running a marathon every day and not take care of ourselves and still think we should be amazing at running this marathon. And then when we can't run the marathon because we haven't slept and we haven't eaten and we haven't trained and we haven't done all the things, we're like, oh, we suck. Right. Right. Which right. It just doesn't make, I mean, and I totally fell into that trap too. And it's not helpful. So mm -hmm. the things I try to talk to parents about are like, you have to get sleep. It's yeah. just, and if you're, if you're like, and I ended up actually going to see a sleep specialist because my sleep was so messed up. And I realized that's, I'm very fortunate that like, I live in a state where there is a sleep specialist and that my insurance paid for it. So right. I just have a whole lot of empathy for those parents who really aren't sleeping or have kids who don't sleep. But the way I talk about sleep is it's like, let's say you go out to your car in the morning and you've got a flat tire. Most people would be like, oh darn, I can't drive that car until I get it fixed. So I have to rearrange my whole day and really lower my expectations and there's stuff that's just not going to get done. But there are those of us who are like, screw it. Like I'll fix the tire when I'm dead. I got to go. I got to go to work and you can still get to where you're going, but the ride is going to be a whole lot more bumpy and painful. You might injure yourself along the way. It's going to be slower. It's going to be rough. And that's how it is when you're not sleeping. Mm -hmm. And so if you really can't sleep, then we come back to the self-compassion and just having so much compassion that you're trying to do everything in life with a flat tire. Right. Um, I also talk about support. And I think for many of us, when things get really tough, we tend to kind of circle the wagons, close things down, bring things into the house, close the windows, try to handle it on our own because it's hard to talk about the suffering in our families or the challenges we're facing. And we cannot parent well alone. It's, it is not possible. And so I talk about the different kinds of support we can have in our lives and how to get it. And then I also just talk about, again, about self-compassion. And I see these three things. Um, in addition, oh, there's one more. Um, single tasking is the mm. fourth. So okay. the, the the things that I see as crucial, really um, not optional if we want to function even like at a baseline with yeah. our kids, yeah. is sleep, support, self-compassion, and single tasking, which is basically doing one thing at a time, which is kind of a precursor for mindfulness. And when we multitask, we just get too stressed and we're going to explode at our kids. And Hopefully, parents will see these all as things that are accessible to them, um, that they can start to get into their lives more. And I go into a lot more detail in the book. Mm -hmm. And then, and and if there's there's also the icing on the cake. Like, what are the if you you know for being. We're just going, we're being aspirational of all the things that you recommend for extra self-care, right? Like we're going for it to live this mindful life, be our best version of ourselves. What else would you add on if someone is able? Yeah. So the other things I talk about are really simplifying your life. And I think that when people think about simplifying, they think about decluttering the physical stuff in their house. And that can be really helpful. I find physical stuff to be a, like clutter is a trigger for me. 
my my husband it, he doesn't even notice and like yay for him and boo for mm-hmm. me but that's mm-hmm. how it is um yeah. but it's also about reducing the number of choices you make on a daily basis because we all get this thing called decision fatigue where when we have to make too many choices even if it's just like which plate you know we have like plastic plates in different colors and the number of fights my kids used to get into when they were little about which plate they were going to get and i was like oh my god i should have just bought them all the same color yeah but you know um Reducing the number of choices in your life is really helpful. And then also decluttering your schedule. And I think this is something um, that many of us experienced over the pandemic is what it feels like to just have less things to do, right? right? And right. less places you have to schlep your kids. And I hope that that for those folks who were really had these overscheduled lives, maybe we can all find a little more balance moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um And then I also talk about really simplifying your life in terms of the information you take in. And I think so many of us are flooded with news and advice and updates. And especially during, I mean, the past year with everything going on in politics and culture and health and all the things, uh, constant updates is, it just, it stresses us out. It's really not helpful. Um, So simplifying stretching, which is my S word for just moving your body, makes a huge difference in terms of all the things that people know. Um, and slowing down, I, I have found that many of us, myself included, tend to hurry even when we're not in a rush. Totally. Totally. Cause yeah. transitions suck and we just want to get through them as fast as we can. And when you can slow down, it really, um, helps lower your anxiety, your stress and make, helps you be more present. Lots of good S's to aspire yes. to. Lots of good S's yes. to aspire to. Okay. So if we're, uh, if we're consolidating this, summarizing this, uh, as we lead up to our parent footprint moment question, we're talking about being self-aware. We're talking about doing our best to stay present. Uh, we are very much talking about being compassionate to oneself, uh, allowing oneself to be human, um, to decide to choose, as you say, to choose what to do next. And I especially love, um, the how we think about talking to our kids and deciding should we let this go should we focus on ourselves should we uh, approach our child and see if we need to uh revisit this and and then saving those big we have to have a conversation talks for the big things um but not making everything an issue absolutely okay absolutely all right carla parent footprint moment question here we go Tell us so, about a time. Yes. Oh, okay. Are you yeah. you're all ready? Or can I ask? Let me ask. You're, you're like so ready. I'm so ready, but to ask the question because I want to make sure I have a good answer. <laughs> okay. 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 Let's, 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 let's take a moment and be mindful. Take some deep breaths. Here we go. <laughs> Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as a person or as a parent and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your children, and those you care about? This is such a good question. Okay. So I um, have always been kind of nostalgic for the moment before it's even passed. Mm. I, and it's, it's hard to describe, but I'm always sort of aware of how fast life is moving and it feels very painful at times. And I always assumed that this was because I grew up in a family of divorce and a whole lot of dysfunction. And I was always missing one parent. There was never a time in my childhood, my parents got divorced before I was a year old Mm. when I don't remember missing one of my parents. Um, and 
this sort of way about me, I always thought it was because I was from such a dysfunctional childhood and it kind of made me sad and it felt so unnecessary. And one of the things I used to do as a kid when I got my first disc camera, if anybody remembers those, oh, yeah. was I would line up all my toys and take pictures of them. And I'm, const- I'm still constantly taking pictures because I'm afraid I'm going to miss a moment and I'm going to forget it and it just feels so painful. So when my daughter was about three years old, she got this big plastic um, digital camera for little kids. And we were on a vacation and we brought some of her toys with us. And at three years old, this child was so fortunate, had not experienced any significant loss, you know, or anything like that. And the first thing she did with her camera was she picked it up and she lined up all her toys and she started taking pictures of them. Wow. And I was like, what? And it, I had this moment. I don't, I don't know that anybody else who was there with us actually noticed what was going on. And my mind was like exploding. And all of a sudden it was like this narrative that I've had about myself and my life and how I became who I am and the impact of my childhood, I was like, oh, maybe this is just who I am. Hmm. And maybe that's okay. Mm -hmm. And this very small moment not only helped me have a huge amount of compassion for myself that like, you know what, we're all just wired how we're wired and it mixes in with what happens to us in ways that we can never anticipate and never fully explain. And the whole nature versus nurture, it's all of it. And it's one big, giant, beautiful mess, right? Yep, yep. And now when I look at my daughters and I see them behave in ways that some most of the time I really love and sometimes I really don't love and sometimes I really worry about, and I am so inclined to go to this place of, is it because of something I did wrong as a parent? Because mm-hmm. they're now 12 and almost 11. I think to myself, there's just no way to know. Mm-hmm. You know, they're picking up this camera and taking pictures of toys for, and they, there was no divorce. There's no, like, they didn't have, this wasn't like a trauma thing. It was just a thing they thought to do. And who knows why we do what we do. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it just brought me to this place of so much compassion and perspective and almost this like crazy kind of, um, release in a way of like, you know, we can't be responsible for everything. And sometimes things just happen. So that's my moment. That's a, great moment and i and i also yeah. think of acceptance right not yes. like compassion but just acceptance of it just is yeah yeah and that you know i think we are parenting in an age where the implicit message to parents is um you are responsible for who your child becomes and right. if your child is struggling it's because you didn't do something right exactly and it's it, it's just not true. It's not no. possible. It's not how the world no. works. And it's a really uh, difficult, painful message for parents that I think often we don't even realize we're being told. Totally. And I'm, yeah. I'm always trying to find ways to help myself let that go and help yeah. other parents let go of that idea. Yeah, yeah, we're spot on. And I'm in terms of Buddhist practice and Buddhist thinking, it makes me think of how we just need to detach, um, you know, and not, it doesn't mean separate, that doesn't mean isolate, but this detach from the pressure of the outcome and also detach from feeling responsible for our kids' lives when they're on their own human journey. And it's so hard, Dr. Dan. It is so hard. (laughs) hard. Everyone, it is so hard. It is the process. Yes. Carla, thank you. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much.
Please tell everyone where they uh, can find your stuff and look for this book, which is uh, percolating. Yes, next one. Got lots of ideas, but you can find out more about me at CarlaNomberg.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find those links on my website. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, everyone. That concludes things for today. Remember to strive to be your best while being kind and compassionate. Try to be the person you want your child to become. Remember, they're always watching. They're always absorbing. They're always listening, except for the things we want them to do in the moment. But they're there and they're taking it all in. So all we can do is be the best people we can be. If you want more of Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan, check out our bonus episodes once a month exclusively on Stitcher Premium. To listen, just go to stitcherpremium.com slash drdan, click start free trial, select a monthly plan and sign up with the code drdan and you'll get a month of free listening. And as always, I will leave you with the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.